Chapter Fourteen of The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Riley. The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Fourteen The Long Run. Vaughn came up soon afterwards, and Dallas told him the great news. They were neither of them naturally vindictive, but the mutual friend had been a heavy burden to them during his stay in the house, and they did not attempt to conceal from themselves their unfeigned pleasure at the news of his impending departure. "'I'll never say another word against Mr. Plunkett, Sr., in my life,' said Vaughn. "'He's a philanthropist. I wonder what the mutual's going to do. Gentlemen of leisure, possibly, unless he's going to the varsity same thing rather i don't know a bit what he's going to do and i can't say i care much he's going that's the main point i say said vaughn i believe the old man was holding a sort of reception to-night i know he had thompson over to his house do you think there's a row on oh i don't know probably only wanted to see if he was all right after the mall by jove it was a bit of a race wasn't it and the conversation drifted off into matters athletic. There were two persons that night who slept badly. Jim lay awake until the college clock had struck three, going over in his mind the various points of his difficulties on the chance of finding a solution of them. He fell asleep at a quarter past without having made any progress. The head, also, passed a bad night. He was annoyed for many reasons, principally, perhaps, because he had allowed Sir Alfred Venner to score so signal a victory over him. Besides that, he was not easy in his mind about Jim. He could not come to a decision. The evidence was all against him, but evidence is noted for its untrustworthiness. The head would have preferred to judge the matter from his knowledge of Jim's character, but after the Plunkett episode, he mistrusted his powers in that direction. He thought the matter over for a time, and then, finding himself unable to sleep, got up and wrote an article for a leading review on the subject of the doxology. The article was subsequently rejected, which proves that Providence is not altogether incapable of a kindly action, but it served its purpose by sending its author to sleep. Barrett, too, though he did not allow it to interfere with his slumbers, was considerably puzzled as to what he ought to do about the cups which he had stumbled upon in the wood. He scarcely felt equal to going to the dingle again to fetch them, and yet every minute he delayed made the chances of their remaining there more remote. He rather hoped that Reed would think of some way out of it. He had a great respect for Reed's intellect, though he did not always show it. The next day was the day of the interhouse cross-country race. It was always fixed for the afternoon after sports day, a most inconvenient time for it, as everybody who had exerted or overexerted himself the afternoon before was unable to do himself justice. Today, contrary to the general expectation, both Drake and Thompson had turned out. The knowing ones, however, were prepared to bet anything you liked, except cash that both would drop out before the first mile was over. 
Merivale's pinned their hopes on Welch. At that time Welch had not done much long-distance running. He confined himself to the hundred yards and the quarter, but he had it in him to do great things, as he proved in the following year, when he won the half, and would have beaten the great Mitchell Jones record for the mile, but for an accident, or rather an event, which prevented his running, the tale of which is told elsewhere. The course for the race was a difficult one. There were hedges and brooks to be negotiated, and worst of all, ploughed fields. The first ploughed field usually thinned the ranks of the competitors considerably. The distance was about ten miles. The race started at three o'clock. Jim and Welch, Merivale's first string, set the pace from the beginning and gradually drew away from the rest. Drake came third, and following him, the rest of the houses in a crowd. Welch ran easily and springily, Jim with more effort. He felt from the start that he could not last. He resolved to do his best for the honor of the house, but just as the second mile was beginning, the first of the ploughed fields appeared in view, stretching, so it appeared to Jim, right up to the horizon. He groaned. "'Go on, Welch,' he gasped. "'I'm done.' Welch stopped short in his stride and eyed him critically. "'Yes,' he said. "'Better get back to the house. You overdid it yesterday. Lie down somewhere. Goodbye.' And he got into his stride again. Jim watched his figure diminish, until at last it was a shapeless dot of white against the brown surface. Then he lay down on his back and panted. It was in this attitude that Drake found him. For a moment, an almost irresistible wish seized him to act in the same way. There was an unstudied comfort about Jim's pose, which appealed to him strongly. His wind still held out, but his legs were beginning to feel as if they did not belong to him at all. He pulled up for an instant. Hello, he said. Done up? For reply, Jim merely grunted. Slacker, said Drake. Where's Welch? Miles ahead. Oh, Lord, groaned Drake, and pulling himself together, set out painfully once more across the heavy surface of the field. Jim lay where he was a little longer. The recollection of the other runners, who might be expected to arrive shortly, stirred him to action. He did not wish to interview everyone on the subject of his dropping out. He struck off at right angles towards the hedges on the left. As he did so, the first of the crowd entered the field. Simpson Major, wearing the colors of the Perkins house on his manly bosom, was leading. Behind him came a group of four, two schoolhouse, Dallas of Wards, and a representative of Prater's. A minute later they were followed by a larger group, consisting this time of twenty or more runners, all that was left of the fifty who had started. The rest had dropped out at the sight of the ploughed field. Jim watched the procession vanish over the brow of the hill, and as it passed out of sight, began to walk slowly back to the school again. He reached it at last, only to find it almost entirely deserted. In Merivale's house, there was nobody. He had hoped that Charteris and Tony might have been somewhere about. When he had changed into his ordinary clothes, he made a tour of the school grounds. The only sign of life, 
as far as he could see, was Biffin, who was superintending the cutting of the grass on the cricket field. During the winter, Biffin always disappeared, nobody knew where, returning at the beginning of the sports week to begin preparations for the following cricket season. It had been stated that during the winter he shut himself up and lived on himself after the fashion of a bear. Others believed that he went and worked in some Welsh mine until he was needed again at the school. Biffin himself was not communicative on the subject, a fact which led a third party to put forward the awful theory that he was a professional association player and feared to mention his crime in a school which worshipped rugby. "'Why, Mr. Thompson,' he said as Jim came up, "'I thought you was running." "'Whoa!' The last remark was addressed to a bored-looking horse attached to the mowing machine. From the expression on its face, the animal evidently voted the whole process pure foolishness. He pulled up without hesitation, and Biffin turned to Jim again. "'Surely they ain't come back yet,' he said. "'I have,' said Jim. "'I did myself up rather in the mile yesterday, and couldn't keep up the pace.' I dropped out at that awfully long ploughed field by Parker's spinney. Biffin nodded. And Oo was winning, sir. Well, Welch was leading, the last I saw of it. Shouldn't wonder if he won, either. He was going all right. I say, the place seems absolutely deserted. Isn't anybody about? Just what Mr. MacArthur was saying to me just this minute, sir. He went into the pavilion. Good. I'll go and hunt for him. Biffin clicked the blasé horse into movement again. Jim went to the pavilion and met the babe coming down the steps. Hello, babe. I was looking for you. Hello. Why aren't you running? Dropped out. Come and have tea in my study. No, I'll tell you what. You come back with me. I've got a rather decent dog I want to show you. Only got him yesterday. Jim reveled in dogs, so he agreed instantly. The babe lived with his parents in a big house about a mile from the college, and in so doing was the object of much envy amongst those who had to put up with life at the house. Jim had been to his home once or twice before, and had always had a very good time indeed there. The two strolled off. In another hour the place began to show signs of life again. The school began to return by ones and twos, most of them taking up a position near the big gates. This was where the race was to finish. There was a straight piece of road about two hundred yards in length before the high road was reached. It was a sight worth seeing when the runners, paced by their respective houses on each side of the road, swept around the corner and did their best to sprint with all that was left in them after ten miles of difficult country. Suddenly, a distant shouting began to be heard. The leaders had been sighted. The noise increased, growing nearer and nearer, until at last it swelled into a roar, and a black mass of runners turned the corner. In the midst of the black was one white figure, Welch, as calm and unruffled as if he had been returning from a short trot to improve his wind. Merivales surged round him in a cheering mob. Welch simply disregarded them. He knew where he wished to begin his sprint, 
and he would begin it at that spot and no other the spot he had chosen was well within a hundred yards from the gates when he reached it he let himself go and from the uproar the crowd appeared to be satisfied a long pause and still none of the other runners appeared five minutes went by before they began to appear first jones of the schoolhouse and simpson who raced every yard of the way and finished in the order named and then three of philpot's house in a body the rest dropped in at intervals for the next quarter of an hour the headmaster always made a point of watching the finish of the cross-country run indeed he was generally one of the last to leave with the majority of the spectators it was enough to see the first five safely in the last man and lock-up arrived almost simultaneously and the head went off to a well-earned dinner he had just finished this meal and was congratulating himself on not being obliged to spend the evening in a series of painful interviews as had happened the night before when parker the butler entered the room well parker what is it asked he mr roberts sir wishes to see you for a moment the head was at a loss he could not recall any friend or acquaintance of that name then he remembered that roberts was the name of the detective who had come down from london to look into the matter of the prizes very well he said resignedly show him into the study parker bowed and retired the head after an interval followed him and made his way to the study end of chapter fourteen